recognize that you are uh, Almighty God. You are eternal. You, from everlasting to everlasting, you alone are God. You are the beginning and the end. You are the creator, maker, designer, and sustainer of all things, that there is none like you. You alone are God of the universe, sovereign ruler over and above all. We come to you looking to you, looking for you, wanting more of you, wanting to hear your voice speak to us through Scripture. And as we look at this chapter in Colossians, we ask that you would just change us on the spot as we discover our purpose or are reminded of our purpose. Some of us in this room may be aimless, may be without meaning at this moment in time, and we are needing you to clarify truth for us and why we're here. And Holy Spirit, would you lead us towards that today? I pray that every word I say would be from you and for you and your glory alone. I ask for your, your power and anointing because you know how weak I am, Lord Jesus. In Christ's name, amen. time, I'll invite Bruce McDowell to come read today's scripture. We're reading today in the Word of God from Paul's letter to the Colossians, starting in chapter 1, verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learnt it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am willing, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Praise the Lord. Thank you very much, Bruce. What we're doing is looking at the second installment in our fall sermon series, and the title of the series is Why Bother with Church? Why Bother with Church? There is a twofold purpose as to why we're looking at this series. And the first purpose is because there's a lot of people in our culture who wonder, maybe they see a church as they drive by a church building and they think, what's the point of that? Why bother with that? I mean, what does the church even do to help real people in our society? Isn't the church just a big club to hang out with other people who dress weird and speak church ease and Christian ease and use words like, you know, blessed and hallelujah and revelation and all these different words and they sing weird songs together and then the pastor gets up and then all it sounds like he does is just condemn everybody and lay judgment on everybody and make it his aim to lay a guilt bomb on everybody. I don't want that. And besides, I'm too busy for church. Sunday morning is my only morning to sleep in and catch up on sleep. And by the way, I got to shop Sunday morning. That's my Costco trip day. And plus, I got to send my kids to their sports and their dance and this and that and the other things. So no thanks. Why would I bother with church? That's the first reason why. And we're going to sort of deal with some of those concerns, which I understand about church, but the second sort of avenue for why we're doing this series is to motivate you, typical, regular Sunday-attending Christian, all right? You might be feeling sort of burnt out on this church attendance kind of thing, and maybe you're exhausted like the Simpsons are exhausted in their church, and you're falling asleep half the time. Maybe you've served hard, and you've prayed hard, and you've given hard and generously of your finances for years, But if you're really honest, you're like, sometimes you come here and you're like, I've kind of lost that loving feeling for my local church. And you know what? You probably need some encouragement. You need some, 
helpful reminding about why do we gather like we do? Why do we do this church thing? You know, here's, here's a primary reason. It's worth it. And it's worth it because church or a local church like Mercy Hill Church, it's Christ's idea. The reason we gather here, it was His idea, all right? And it's His primary instrument to advance His kingdom in the world. In fact, by design, a local church family is all about showcasing the beautiful character of God, His goodness, His greatness, um, His holiness, just like a jewelry store. And this is the analogy I often use. A jewelry store that you might see at Willowbrook Mall, where do they put their most beautiful, glistening, eye-catching jewelry and diamond rings? They put them in the glass cases. Where? On the outside of the store. Why do they put them there? To draw people in so that they might, be, they might see the attractiveness of these diamond rings. And that's what we are to our world. We are to show off and display the glistening glory and, and beauty of God's character to our lost, our hurting, our broken world. That's why we're here to showcase and show off the most holy, the most powerful, the most good, the most captivating person in the universe. This is God the Father, this is God the Son, and this is God the Holy Spirit. So my hope and my prayer is simply that, Jesus, would you use this series to ignite for the first time or reignite your passion for the local church like Mercy Hill. All right, there's the preamble. Our message for today and the angle is simply this. Why you should bother with church is because the church can help you discover your purpose. The church can help you discover your purpose. You know, people are not the only things for whom they kind of lose their way or are confused about why they exist. Sometimes tools forget why they exist or we forget about why certain tools exist. There are some strange tools in our world and in some cases... Their purpose remains a mystery. Let me example. We're going to play that name that tool uh, game here. If you wanted to or not, we're going to play it. And this is the first tool that I want to run by you. Can anyone name this tool? Anyone know? Bang. That's, I know exactly what that tool is. Anybody know what this tool is? It's a light tester for ballasts. What kind of lights? Oh, he knew it. See, for him, it's not a mystery. You named it. It's a fluorescent light tester. This is bad. This is backfiring already. Uh, but he's the only guy. Did anyone else know that? You kind of knew that. Fantastic. So two of you. But not many. All right, that's the point. How about this next tool? Any guesses? Making shingles. Oh, my gosh. You guys are too good. It is for making shingles. It's called a shingle fro. All right, it's a specialized tool. You can head into the forest. You can start whacking a log, and you can start making shingles. It's fantastic. Uh, let's look at this next tool. This is, might be my favorite. This might be har- hopefully harder for you. Anyone know what this next tool is? Finally, finally have a tool that no one knows. And it's a weird name of a tool. Here's the name of the tool. You ready? It's called a Stanley Number 1 Odd Jobs Tool. Stanley Number 1 Odd Jobs Tool. It says it on there, all right? And as weird as that sounds, this is what it's called. And this tool, it's an all-in-one layout tool. It was used between 1888 and the 1930s. It's actually 10 tools in one, all right? It's a level, it's a depth gauge, it's a tri-square, it's a compass, and on and on and on it goes. The final tool I want to run by you is this. Anyone know what this one is? You probably do because you guys are very smart, obviously. That's right. Say it again. Okay. 
It's an ads. I think I may have heard ads. Not an ax, but an ads, okay? And it can be, uh, uh, its use can be traced back to the ancient Egyptians. And what you would do with an ads is you would work on a log, a big log, and you'd use this ads to make that log square so that you could then build buildings and beams and that sort of thing. Here's my point about these mystery or not so mysterious tools to you. Would a tool, let's imagine a tool can be animate. Let's imagine these tools being alive. Would, would a tool feel useful to the world if it was not being used in the way for which it was made? All right? If it was used in a way that it was not designed to be used in, would there be any inner joy in that tool, as strange as that sounds? And the thing is, the Bible's clear when it comes to you, to human beings, that unless and until you discover your purpose... The reason for why you're taking in oxygen into your lungs, the reason why there's blood flowing through your veins, the reason for why your heart is pumping at this moment, until you discover your God-given purpose, your life will feel meaningless, dry, boring, hopeless, robotically routine, purposeless. And the reason that you feel that way is because you weren't designed for that Life was not meant to be that way for you. You were made, put together, designed for so much more. Something greater, and you were made for someone in particular, and this someone is the ultimate one who will give you hope and meaning and purpose that you are looking for. We're all looking for that. Problem is, we're looking for it in all the wrong places, as the song goes. Perhaps you're still on the fence about Christianity, you're new to it, or you might be a Christian, you've been going to church for a while, you've kind of lost the fire, and you feel aimless. You're like, what's going on? Where am I going? And there's a, a great sense of purposelessness. Wherever you're at, this message is for you. It's for me. We all lose sight sometimes. Don't we lose our way sometimes, Christian or not? Of course we do. And so this brings us back to what it's all about, and purpose is a key part of things. The first point I want to share in your notes about how the church can help you find your purpose is this. You you were made by and you were made for preeminent Jesus. He is your purpose and he is holding you and all things together. We get this from Colossians chapter 1 that Bruce read. It's impossible to overstate how important this point is when it comes to you discovering your purpose. Because your purpose, whether you're a Christian today or you're not yet a Christian today, your purpose is a person and his name is Jesus. That's why you're alive. You were made by Jesus. You were made for Jesus at this precise moment. Jesus Christ is holding your body together. He's holding you together. He's actually holding all things in our universe together. Does it get any bigger than this? I don't think so. And we get this point from verses 16 to 18. And in these verses, it tells us that all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus in Jesus, all things hold together. He's not only the head of the church and in charge of the entire church, the big C church. Uh, he's not only the beginning of those who also will be raised from the dead, but it says Jesus is preeminent. Preeminent. Now, what in the world does that word mean? What does preeminent mean? It means this, first in rank, first in importance, over and above all others. This is who we're talking about. This is Jesus. Jesus is God. You don't get any higher than God. Now, let me flesh this out a little more. Have you ever heard someone say the words, I owe everything to him. 
I owe everything to her. Or you may have said, I owe a lot to this particular person in my life. All right? Maybe this person is, I owe everything to my dad or my mom or maybe my former boss or my employee or my friend. Maybe my coach, you're into sports. I owe my sports career to my coach, whatever it is. And for me, when I thought about myself, I owe a lot to my former boss who was a senior pastor at the first church I was employed full-time. This was, this was a church in downtown Toronto. And guess how old I was at that time? 24 years old. I, was, I redefined the meaning of green or greenhorn, as you might see on Deadliest Catch. I mean, I was a greenhorn pastor. I couldn't preach. If you think my preaching is bad now, you should have heard me then. It was ugly. I didn't know how to lead stuff. I didn't know how to train volunteers. I didn't know how to do weddings. I didn't know how to dedicate babies. I didn't know how to do funerals. I didn't, do, I didn't know how to... I was green. I didn't know nothing to be a pastor. All right? There I am. Baby face. Overweight. Wonderful. My wife is like the bling on that picture, is she not? Man, I'm lucky. But anyhow, here's the thing, though. Over time... I spent some time with my boss who trained me, showed me the ropes, and I eventually figured things out to a greater measure. How did that happen? Well, we just spent a lot of time together. We spent years together, five or six or seven years. And next thing you know, I'm starting to preach in a way that people might be listening. That's helpful. I start training my team of leaders. I start to organize my weekly schedule according to how he organizes his weekly schedule. And even to this day, sometimes I'll hear myself preach things and say things that he would say or things that he would preach or even just say in conversation. And I'll organize my schedule according to how he organized it. And it's just kind of a scary twilight zone kind of thing that happens. I owe a lot to my former boss. But you see, no, no, no. I owe way more. You owe way more to someone else. And that is Jesus Christ. You know why? Because you are made by Jesus, he puts you together. He designed you to be just as you are. He, he, he was the one who selected your personality and gave it to you. He, you were made and designed and created, and you are therefore owned by Jesus Christ. And not only are you owned by Jesus and therefore accountable to Jesus, but you are made for Jesus, made by Jesus for him, for his purposes, for his glory, and for his credit. And so there's no greater person to belong to There's no greater person to live for. There's no higher person to purposely serve than Jesus Christ. He is your purpose. Your purpose is a person. You were made for him. And I'm saying that if you've been floundering around in the darkness, in this place of purposelessness and boredom and fatigue and meaninglessness and purposelessness, perhaps for your whole life, I'm saying come to Jesus Today, come to the one who at this very moment, so right now in this moment as we're talking, right now he is holding you together. He is keeping your heart pumping. He is keeping your brainwaves moving throughout your brain and your nervous system. Just come home. Just come home to the one who is waiting for you and who loves you more than anyone else does or ever will. You were made by Jesus for Jesus. He is your purpose. Let's move on to point number two in your notes as we roll along and look at some key truths in Colossians chapter 1. This next point will help you discover your purpose in this way. 
Your purpose is to place your faith in Jesus and be reconciled to God, receiving forgiveness of sins, and to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Now, you see how we're going from step number one to step number two? The first step is recognizing, yeah, I've been made for Christ, made by Christ for Christ. That's step number one. Now, step number two is, wait a minute, Jesus demands that I respond to him in a certain way if I want in and all that he offers me and all the good things that he is giving to me. He demands a response. Verse four talks about the Christians in an ancient city of Colossae. And these Christians in this ancient city in verse four, they are placing their faith in Christ Jesus, placing their faith in Christ Jesus. Then verses 13 and 14 talks about how Jesus delivers us from the domain of of darkness where there's nothing good there. This is the place where God's light and God's goodness and God's presence is absent. There's just nothing good in this this dark kingdom. But we're transferred from that dark kingdom by the grace of Jesus and his power into a new kingdom. And in this new kingdom, Jesus is there. Light is there. The one he, he is the one who has redeemed us and rescued us from that dark place, and he's made it possible for all of our sins, past, present, and future, all of our sins to be removed away from us, forgiven for us. As far as the east is from the west, are our sins taken away from us through Christ. That's what he's done for us. And then verse 20. It says we are reconciled to God because our sins are taken away. We can be made right with God, brought into a right relationship of peace with God because of Christ's cross. You can be at peace with God because Jesus paid it all for your sins. He paid the price for your sins at the cross. He died in your place. He took the punishment for those sins so you would not have to be judged for those sins. Isn't that good? So don't you see your purpose is to trust in Jesus, be Believe in him and be amazed by his great love for you. You don't deserve any of this. I don't deserve any of this. But he's given it to us and he's chose to make you right with God and forgive all of your sins and to redeem you and rescue you from that dark place because you mean that much to Jesus. God died for you. He died for you because you mean that much to him. You are loved that much by him. And so, therefore, become his follower. Trust in him. Become his child. Enter into his family forever. You belong with Jesus. Here's my conversion story. How I came to Christ. It was in my teen years. And I don't know what your teen years were like, but mine were not terribly pleasant or happy. As a, a teen, I was forced to, my whole life up until that point, forced to go to church on Sunday mornings. And while I actually enjoyed that for about the first 13, 14, 15 years, I started to not enjoy it, and I started to actually resent and probably hate all things Christian at that stage in my life. My attitude was bad. I dis- disrespected my parents, lipped off to my parents, lipped off to my teachers. I made it my goal to mess or try to mess with the teachers' minds, and I was actually quite good at it because I was kind of sneaky. All right? I like to strategize about how to make people's lives miserable. It's amazingly fun. I don't recommend this. This is what happens when you're in a dark place and belong to a dark kingdom. But I, I quit youth group. I didn't like the pastor, and I had no motivation to go. 
um, and there's just no motivation in general. I didn't apply myself in school. I was very strong. I was at the top of my class up until about grade 8, and then I decided, what am I doing? And then grade 9, I just went in the tank. At least I passed some stuff, but it, my, everything changed for me for the bad, all right? But something occurred in my high school years, and in my high school, there was a, a revival that occurred amongst my fellow classmates, and there was a youth group in town, and next thing you know, this youth group blows up to like two or 300 uh, high school students, and, and guys that I went to, to school with who were absolute partiers and had no church background were becoming Christians en masse, and then these, these former partiers and anti-Christian people were loving Jesus and being baptized into him and then sharing their faith at school and sharing their faith with me. I was the church kid who needed saving. I was being saved by these former pagan friends of mine. That's nuts. That really threw me for a loop. At which point I decided I better make sure Christianity, or at least check it out and see if it might be correct or if it might be the right way to find God. Maybe all this history in the church and history in Christianity in my family, maybe there is something to it. And long story short, I started to read uh, Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. That was a very helpful book. I discovered that Christianity is the most historically and archaeological reliable religion in the world. That is actually true. That because of the scriptural and manuscript evidence of the Bible, this book, there's no more historically reliable book in the, in the world than the Bible. And I came to that place of, like, I can't doubt this stuff anymore. I prayed to Jesus in my room. I said, please forgive me. Please, please make me yours. Send your Holy Spirit to, to make me alive spiritually. And, and he did. And then at, at which point I was infused with joy and purpose and meaning. And I was, I was, that was the evidence that I was forgiven by God, that I was redeemed and rescued by God from that dark place into the kingdom of light. Next thing you know, people are starting to say, Kurt, where's that bad attitude I grew to love so much? Where's the anger? You know, where's that rebel? We want the rebel Kurt back. I said, I don't know where it went. Well, it was Jesus. Why are you now so filled with joy, and why are you so boldly sharing your faith in the classroom in front of the whole class to the same teacher that you once lipped off? How is that possible? I said, Jesus. Why are you now treating your parents well and respectfully? I said, Jesus. And all of this was by the grace of God. And by the, his grace and his goodness, I discovered purpose. I placed my faith in him. Everything changed. And there's something so beautiful and so joyful about finally reaching that place that I've discovered the one I'm meant for. My whole life has been leading to this point, and I've been missing out on so much. I was meant for him. I'm blown away that God, the Son, would die to save me. But he did. And my sins are now wiped away. There's nothing in me that's going to keep me away from God's presence and God's hope and God's future. I'm forgiven because of him. And my future in him is secure. And it's, this future is better than anything I could have dreamed up. And that's coming for me. I'm going there. By a sheer grace, this kingdom of light, I'm just saying, do you need to discover or rediscover how beautiful it is to trust in Christ. And if you do, let's have that conversation. Let's talk. Talk to somebody. Talk to somebody. That is not something you want to put off. All right? Let's move on to number three as I try to compose myself. Number three in your notes is simply this. Your purpose is to serve your not-yet-Christians 
It's to serve not yet Christians by helping them learn about the gospel. That's your purpose. Your purpose is to serve not yet Christians by helping them learn about the gospel. So, yes, it's your purpose to trust in Christ, become a Christian. Again, Jesus is your purpose, but also part of your purpose is then to adopt the purpose and the mission of Jesus. To do what Jesus Christ commissions you, commissions me to do, and that which he commissions us to do is to help not yet Christians learn the gospel, hear about Jesus. And we get this from verse 7. I love this story about Epaphras. And Epaphras is mentioned in verse 7 there and elsewhere in the New Testament. He's one of my heroes. I just love the story about Epaphras. And according to Bible scholars and Bible historians, we're, we're pretty sure he was likely an ancient businessman who lived in the ancient city of Colossae. And as businessmen and business people have to do on time to time to to sort of drum up business, is you have to travel. And so it seems that Epaphras was in the ancient city of Ephesus, which was much more prominent, much more economically strong, just a greater population base. He was in Ephesus, and perhaps somebody invited him to this brand new church plant that the Apostle Paul had started. And it seems as if it's there that Epaphras hears about Jesus through Paul. And he is amazed that, uh, uh, he, he's amazed by what Christ has done for him, and he is convicted. He discovers his purpose. He becomes a Christian, and then he goes back to his hometown, Colossae, and what does he do there? He starts naturally speaking about Jesus because he's been captivated. His imagination has been captured by Christ himself. And he's sharing about his new purpose in Christ. He's sharing all that Christ has done for him. And just naturally, as he's talking to his own network of friends and family and business contacts, people are becoming Christians, and bam, a church is planted. A church is started by accident, if you will. Not accident to Jesus, but perhaps accidentally to Epaphras. And isn't this beautiful? But back to point number three. Your purpose is like Epaphras' purpose. It's to do the same thing. Help the people in your relationship network learn about the gospel, hear about Jesus. It's that simple. I want to share a story. One of my recent heroes is a lady by the name of Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria Butterfield, there she is. And she's a former lesbian university professor. She was a professor at Syracuse University some years ago, and she was living with uh, a woman. And one day, someone knocks on the door. She opens up the door. Who is it? Well, it's the local Presbyterian pastor in the area who happens to be her next-door neighbor. And this pastor simply invites her over to their home for a meal. And so she says yes, because that's, wow, that's pretty amazing to be invited over by a neighbor to your home. And so she goes over to the pastor's home, And it's there that she starts to experience the love of Jesus. And the pastor is bold enough as well to start, you know, through natural conversation, speaking about Jesus. And as a university professor, she was very curious about other worldviews. And the long story short is, three years later, you know what happened? She becomes a Christian. And she repents of her ways. She comes around. And eventually, over time... She marries a Christian pastor herself, gets a husband. They adopt all, uh, just a gaggle of children. 
adopted into this new family. And now she's a pastor's wife. All right, that's quite a change. That's quite a shift, you might say. Remarkable. And what she ends up doing is the same thing that this Presbyterian pastor did. In this neighborhood that she and her husband live in and her kids live in, they start just doing natural hospitality because that's what led her to Christ. Now she's just extending and showing and living out and speaking the gospel in the same way. So she starts inviting people. So every Thursday night is neighbor night. Every, I thought you were bringing me something. <laughs> I thought that was for me. I'm just teasing you. It's my son. So every Thursday night is neighbor night, and you invite your neighbors over, and all they do is just have a meal together, and then if they want to stay for a Bible study after the meal, they're certainly welcome to. Excuse me. And some people do, some people don't. I better make this short because I'm getting long in, the, in time here. Anyhow, here's what happens. The next-door neighbor happens to be a big, rough, tough guy. He's tattooed up. He's kind of mean. He's, he's rather cold. And he has a pit bull for a pet, okay, a friendly pit bull. All right, so this is that guy. She invites him over to this Thursday night neighborhood meal that she hosts in her home. And what does he say? He says, no, this is not actually him, by the way. This is just somebody I, I thought he might look like that, okay? All right. So he says no. He's like, no, no, no thanks. So he's very icy cold. Well, one day... The guy starts knocking on all the neighbors' doors. You know why? He's lost his dog. He can't find the pit bull. So he's asking his neighbors, have you seen my pit bull? Well, she says, you know what? I've got a gaggle of kids here. I'll send them out to look for this dog, which is a little brave, actually. But anyhow, she sends them out, and there's some forest nearby. And lo and behold, guess who finds the dog? One of her kids. They find the dog. They bring the dog back to this guy who's been ice cold to them. Well, talk about a watershed moment. That just takes all the barriers down. Now he's showing up for Thursday night neighborhood uh, supper, and he's staying for a Bible study thereafter. Well, shortly after this happens for a few weeks, the next stage in the story is this. The cops show up. And guess whose house the cops show up at? This neighbor's home. And the drug enforcement people are there as well. You know why? Because there's a meth lab in the basement of this neighbor's home. There's a meth lab there. The guy gets busted, and on his way to the car from which he will be taken to jail, he calls out to Rosaria Butterfield, and he says, well, one of you guys look after my dog. She says, yes, and so off to, off to jail he goes, and it's in jail. Guess who starts meeting with him in jail? Her husband, who's a pastor, what does he do? He shares the gospel with him. What then happens? He becomes a Christian. He comes to his senses. He discovers Jesus. He discovers his purpose for which he was made. He wasn't made to make drugs. He was made for Christ. And I'm just saying, how did this happen? Rosaria Butterfield simply helped the man learn Christ. He experienced the love of Christ through her and her family. He heard also, it's not just enough to show the love of Christ. You've got to speak some love of Christ. You've got to speak some gospel truth to somebody. And that's what they did. And here he is, discovering his purpose. Yes, he's in jail. Yes, he's paying for his crime according to the rules and the laws of the land. But this is the power of helping others learn Christ. I mean, we have a mission to do, and this is what Christ has called us to, to serve others, those who are not yet Christians. I'm going to try to bring this in for a landing. Let's move on now to number four. The fourth aspect about your purpose has more of a church connection. It's simply this. Your purpose is to help others in your church mature in Christ. Your purpose is to help others in your church family mature and grow in Christ. 
directly or indirectly. That's why you're here. You're not here just for you. You're not here just to receive uh, teaching about the Bible or receive worship and receive a little encouragement. No, you're supposed to receive, yes, but you're also supposed to give back and serve others. Okay? That's how it works. We see this in verses 25 and 28. The Apostle Paul there talks about his job is to teach the Bible to the church for what purpose? That he may present, this is the key, present everyone mature in Christ. That's his job. I'm sure many of you work in this room. You have a full-time job or a part-time job. And I'm sure at some point you have had to job train someone else. They've had to job shadow you, look to you for how to do your job so they can do their job as well. So do what I say, type what I type, say what I say, read this instruction booklet, which is everyone's favorite thing to read. But anyhow, you see, the health and longevity of your business or your workplace it's dependent on you and your other co-workers training others to become more mature in their jobs. Training others to become more mature in their jobs and learn the job. And so it is in our local church family. If you teach the Bible, either on Sunday mornings or in your community group or in the children's ministry down the hall, or if you're a parent with kids, yeah, you should be teaching the Bible to your kids. Your aim is to help others learn more about the Bible, to understand the Bible, understand God's truth, and apply God's truth. Or more indirectly, maybe you're a multimedia volunteer. You're doing sound tech. Maybe you're, you're playing in the, on the worship team. Maybe you're re- preparing refreshments and coffee for the church family. Maybe you're a greeter at the door. Maybe you're a debit machine volunteer. Maybe you're a church treasurer. Whatever your role is, your purpose in that volunteer role is to help others, directly or indirectly, mature in Christ, grow in Christ, learn to serve Jesus as you do here, learn the ropes about how to better serve Jesus, and your focus needs to be, how can I serve and train and teach others? How can I help others uh, learn the ways of Jesus? How can I serve others? This is how a church becomes more faithful and how a church grows and how a church family thrives and becomes healthy. And if you're at a place now, you're like, I haven't found a place to serve here in this church. I'm saying, take a look at the, uh, the uh, Connect card. And on that back of the Connect card, which I cannot find at the moment, there's all kinds of volunteer opportunities. Let me just say, on an ongoing basis, we always have volunteer needs. Right now, we have a need for children's volunteers. We also have needs for setup volunteers. We need multimedia volunteers. We need sound tech volunteers. We need worship team volunteers. We need refreshments volunteers. We need someone to purchase the refreshments materials from week to week as well. Because right now, that's me. I'm so excited, so grateful. If you want to do that, come talk to me. All right? It's a week-in, week-out kind of role. And uh, maybe you like to shop. That job's for you. All right? But don't, uh, don't sit on the sidelines. Don't sit on the sidelines and watch everyone else work and serve. No, get in the game. Get in the game. You've got work to do. I've got work to do. Let us serve Christ and one another together. I better pray. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you are the ultimate servant who laid down your life to save us and that we might be changed and transformed by your grace. We owe everything to you. We come to this time of the Lord's Supper 
to remember you, to celebrate the cross, celebrate your perfect life lived, to celebrate your resurrection. And I pray that you would become real and present in this moment as we partake of these symbols of the bread and of the wine. In Christ's name, amen.